Suffering isn't one of our favorite topics to think or talk about. Most of our discussions about suffering tend to focus on how much we'd like it to end as soon as possible. There can be confusion around whether Christians are even supposed to experience suffering. Should we be people who are untouched by the sorrows of the world? Should we only experience unmitigated success without any frustrations at all from the moment we put our faith into Jesus until the moment we die and go to be in God's presence? The simple answer is no. Christians will experience suffering. How do we know? Because we look to Jesus as our example, and we know that he suffered. As his people, we will follow in his footsteps and suffer too. In case there's any lingering doubt in your mind, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There is our sunny, happy scripture for this morning. We may think that everyone knows that suffering is part of the Christian life, but I can tell you that I didn't for a long time. I thought if I just obeyed God as much as possible, then I would be untouched by the suffering and difficulties of the world. Then I got to experience suffering firsthand, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't think this was supposed to happen to me. I'm one of God's people after all, and he protects and provides for his children. While my assumptions weren't wrong about how God cares for his people, what I was missing is that he also uses suffering to grow and mature his people. He uses it to turn us from our sin. He uses it to humble us so that we'll rely on him. What God taught me was that to seek a life free from suffering was to seek a life free from the loving discipline of my Heavenly Father. I definitely didn't want that. If suffering is unavoidable, then how am I supposed to deal with it? How can I suffer in a way that is pleasing to God? The psalmist in this section of Psalm 119 provides us valuable insight into how we can suffer well. As the psalmist writes this section of Psalm 119, he's suffering in a difficult situation. He's experiencing affliction from arrogant people who slander him with lies. He's suffering at the hands of people who lie to make him look bad in the eyes of everyone around him. If that weren't bad enough, they're using their lies to threaten his life. He feels like he's in a life or death situation and he calls out to God in his distress. In the midst of his very real distress and feelings that his life is in danger, what does he say about God? What does he ask for from God? How does he suffer well? The first thing the psalmist focuses on is the path that God has given him to go down and the people he's given him to go with. That's in verses 73 and 74. The second thing the psalmist focuses on is how God is the one who brings both suffering and comfort to him. That's in verses 75 through 77. 
The third thing the psalmist focuses on is how God supports him through his suffering, and that's in verses 78 through 80. The psalmist begins by acknowledging that God is the one who made him. God is the one who gave him life and has established his purposes and plans for him to accomplish during his life. But along with knowing that God made him and gave him a path to travel, he asked God to give him understanding to learn God's commands. Not only is God the one that made him, but God is the one who must provide him wisdom to learn God's commands and walk in them throughout his life. He trusts that God has a purpose for him and has put him in this position to learn from him. Since God made him and established the way he should go, he needs God to give him understanding to learn his commands. Only God can complete the work that he's begun in his people. Because God made us, he's the one that knows best what he's prepared for us and what we need to learn to follow him. I recently had an experience that helped me understand how much we need the one who created us to guide us in the way we should go. It all began when I bought a new gas can. I'd seen someone else with a similar one, so I had an idea of how it was supposed to use it. This type of gas can has a button that you press to get the gas out of the can. It's really handy. It lets you turn the gas can upside down and get the nozzle in the right place before the gas starts pouring out. When I used my new gas can for the first time, I screwed off the cap at the end of the spout. I didn't know where to put it, so I dropped it on the ground. I remember thinking at the time, I hope I don't lose that or step on it and break it. I hadn't read the instructions for my new gas can yet. I figured, how hard can it be to use a gas can anyway? A funny thing happened when I read the instructions. I learned that the cap for the spout that I dropped on the ground was supposed to be stored on the gas can when it was removed from the spout. They'd even made a little thing on the top of the cap and a little notch in the spout so I could just slide it right in. But I didn't know that it was there. I never would have figured out on my own how to use it the right way. But once I learned how it was supposed to work, I understood the wisdom of the designer and how he put it together. This is a lot like how we need God to give us understanding so that we can learn his commands. In the same way that I needed the gas can instructions to best understand how to use the gas can, we need God to give us understanding on how to learn and obey his commands. How hard can life be anyway? As it turns out, really hard. And what we find is that face difficult situation. Understanding. We are at a loss when we face difficult situations. Without him teaching us his commands, we don't know how life works and what we're supposed to do. The psalmist is acknowledging that he needs God to provide him understanding in order to learn who God is and what God commanded him to do. God started the work by making him, and God will continue the work by giving him wisdom to walk through God's world. Since God made the world and made us, there are no better instructions we can get in how to live in this world to please him than his commands.
Learning God's commands is a lifelong process. We learn not only what God expects, but how he helps us to do what he's called us to do. There is no point where we've learned enough that we can go out on our own apart from God. Because he made us and established us, we will always be dependent on him. But God hasn't only given us a path to go down. He's also given us other people to go down the path with together. Who are these people? They're God's people. They're the ones who fear God and rejoice when they see God's people putting their hope in God's word. You and I can be very different from each other. We can have different interests, different hobbies, different favorite TV shows and movies. What we have in common is our hope in God's word. Through God's word, we learn about his son. Through God's word, we learn about our sin. Through God's word, we see Jesus reconcile us to God through his perfect life and sacrificial death. We learn that he's our only hope of being changed from God's enemies into God's children. When we have a common hope in God's word, we have the most important and life-giving truth binding us together. What we have in common isn't where we've come from, but that we look to and hope in God. Another thing we have in common is how we respond to seeing God at work in his people. It's a cause of rejoicing for us in God. This helps us look beyond ourselves to rejoice together with those who hope in God and his word. The psalmist hopes that other people who follow God will rejoice when they see him put his hope in God's word. They are all drawn together in seeing God at work in one of his people and rejoicing at what God is doing. When you see God at work in someone else, is your first response rejoicing? Or sometimes, does envy set in? Do you wonder why they seem to be having such an easy time while you seem to constantly struggle? God has made each one of us with particular gifts and abilities. And all of those abilities come from him and are used to serve him. God has his own plans for you and his grace is sufficient for you. Rejoice in seeing God at work in others and rejoice that he has purposes for you to serve him in a way that is well-pleasing to him. One last thing. We need to beware of isolating ourselves from God's people. It could be because we're introverted. Or it could be because we don't want others to know what we're going through. What binds God's people together isn't our perfect obedience of God, but our reverence of him. What binds us together is seeing each other hope in God's word through the inevitable struggles that we all face. If you're the type of person that likes to keep all of your struggles to yourself, please consider that you are not only keeping God's people at a distance, but that you're preventing opportunities for people to rejoice in God as they see him work in you. That may not seem like a big deal, but God's people are to show God's glory. We demonstrate his weighty worth by letting other people know how he's worked in us to accomplish things we could never do 
on our own. When we keep others at arm's length, they don't get the opportunity to give God glory for his work in us. Don't get me wrong. I know we live in a culture where we like to carefully curate our lives using social media to tell only about our victories and never about our struggles. The pressure to keep up with others and look as good as they do is real, but it doesn't come from God. It comes from the world and the desires of the world. As followers of Christ, we have all admitted that we were so bad that it took the death of the Son of God to save us from our sins. We hope in God's words of salvation and forgiveness, never because we deserve them, but because he graciously called us to be his people. When we hide our struggles from each other, it's worth considering what we're actually putting our hope in. Is it that other people will think we're doing well? Is it that other people won't know that we have real struggles with sin? Have we transferred our hope from the sure promises of God to maintaining a false image of ourselves. Again, what binds us together isn't how well we're doing, but that we hope in God's word and are continuing to be transformed by it. Are you willing to share with others how your hope in God's word is what sustains you through your struggles with sin? One of the things that can make it hard for us to share our struggles with each other is the false idea that suffering can only be an indication of personal failure. But as the psalmist continues in verses 75 through 77, he makes it clear that the suffering we face is brought to us by God for his purposes in our lives. During my last sermon on Psalm 119, I spent time talking about affliction that comes as a result of our own sin, an affliction that comes as the result of the sins of others. In this section of the psalm, the psalmist knows that God's judgments are just and that God has afflicted him fairly as he faces affliction brought about by the sins of others. As the psalmist seeks God's comfort in his suffering, he acknowledges that God is the one who has brought this affliction about. But even in the midst of affliction, he's convinced that God's judgments are just. He simultaneously says that God judges rightly and afflicts him fairly. We can chafe at this idea that God brings affliction into our lives. How can a good God cause bad things to happen to his people? God always does what is right. So the first thing that we have to say is that his bringing affliction into our lives is for our good, even if we don't like how it feels. God works to teach us to walk with him through the difficult circumstances of our lives. In the case of affliction that happens because of sin, God uses it to convict us of our sin and lead us to repentance. In verse 67 of Psalm 119, the psalmist admits that God used affliction in his life to bring him back to God and teach him to keep God's word instead of disobeying it like he had been. 
God is wise and faithful to bring about circumstances in our lives that will show us our sin so that we'll keep his word. In case of affliction that happens to us because of the sins of others, though, God uses it to humble us and teach us to depend on him and obey him. Through affliction brought about by others sinning against us, God humbles us to show us our ongoing need for him. The psalmist has mentioned multiple times how his enemies are treating him in this psalm. They've taunted him, spoken against him, ridiculed him, and smeared him with lies. Now they're slandering him with lies. They're saying things that aren't true about him in order to ruin his reputation and bring him harm. They will say anything to make the psalmist look bad in the eyes of other people, including things that they absolutely know aren't true. Even in these circumstances, the psalmist sees that God is even-handed in using affliction to humble and teach him. God uses adversity to show his faithfulness to us and to grow us in our faithfulness to him. Even the darkest actions of evil people can be used by God to accomplish his purposes for his people so that we'll grow in him. This idea that God uses affliction to teach us to obey him shows up early in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 8.2, Moses writes, Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey these 40 years in the wilderness so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Moses continues in verses 5 and 6, Keep in mind, that the Lord your God has been disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. So keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Moses, the humble servant of God, tells us that God uses affliction to humble and test us to know what is in our hearts and whether we will keep his commands. God disciplines us as his children so that we'll keep his commands, walk in his ways, and fear him. But even though the psalmist knows that God's judgments are just and that he's being afflicted fairly, it doesn't mean that the suffering doesn't hurt. The psalmist is afraid for his life because of the slander and lies of those that arrogantly oppose him. In this difficult situation, he asks God to comfort him in his affliction. He doesn't try to argue that the affliction is undeserved or unfair, but as he experiences it and fears for his life, he turns to God to ask for his help. Where should we turn for comfort and relief in the midst of suffering? to the God who brought affliction into our lives to teach us to know him more. When we experience affliction, we can feel like God is upset with us. Or we can think that because he's brought affliction into our lives, that he doesn't care for us. Or that he won't be willing to comfort us. But that's not the case. The psalmist asks for God's faithful love to comfort him as God promised his servants. He is asking God to keep his promise to him by comforting him in the midst of his suffering. 
he knows that the same God who brings affliction into his life will also bring him comfort because of his faithful love. How does God show us his faithful love? Throughout our entire lives, he loves and cares for us. He remembers that he called us to be his children and he forgives our sins. He teaches us the way for us to go so that we will know him and do what is right in his sight. He keeps growing us in obedience of his commands through suffering so that we will show that we belong to him because all of his people grow in obedience to him. The only way we experience any of the benefits of God's faithful love is because he's the one who first loved us by sending Jesus to save us from our sins. He called us out of our rebellion to him to become his beloved children. But being his beloved children also means he provides us the discipline and instruction we need to learn to love and obey him more. He's committed to making us more and more like himself. And that means we'll suffer because that's one of the ways that we grow. But through that growth process, he comforts us and keeps us as he's promised to do. He will never leave us or forsake us. God is infinite and his ways are above our ways. We regularly struggle to wrap our minds around him and how he works. Because he is God and we are not. But God always does what is right. That includes both when he afflicts us and when he comforts us. There will be times when we don't understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. But in those times, we need to confidently say, along with the psalmist, I know, Lord, that your judgments are just and that you have afflicted me fairly. While we may fail, fail to see how God is loving and caring for us, it doesn't mean that he isn't. Part of the reason we struggle with this so much is that we're used to being treated badly by other sinful people. We've experienced people saying they were working for our benefit when they actually used us for their own selfish purposes. God will never treat us this way. The suffering he brings into our lives is for our good, whether we can see it or not. God's faithful love is always being worked out in our lives. He truly loves and cares for us. Even though he brings about affliction in our lives, he always does it fairly. He doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to endure. And he's always available to hear our prayers for comfort and relief. He knows how to use the circumstances of our lives to teach us the things that we need to learn. And because he loves us, he's committed to our growth in holiness. Sometimes we forget that being comfortable isn't our greatest good. Instead, it is growing in our relationship with God. God is never cruel toward us, but he is completely committed to our sanctification and he will make it happen. As C.S. Lewis wrote to help us understand how God uses suffering in our lives, here's his quote. I suggest to you, that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. 
pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. While I know it's not a popular subject to bring up, school will be starting up again soon. For some of the kids in our congregation, this can be a cause of anxiety because they've experienced opposition directly to their faith in Jesus. I want to encourage you in the midst of affliction that you experience for following Jesus to ask God to comfort you with his faithful love. The angry words of kids and teachers who oppose you may hurt, but they don't change God's continual loving care for you. He knows the difficulties you are facing, and he will sustain you through them. He will use them to grow you in your faith in him. It's particularly helpful to know that Jesus went through opposition and continued to trust in God, setting an example for us to follow. Jesus sympathizes with our affliction because he experienced it himself. Along with asking for comfort, the psalmist asked for God's compassion so that he may live. He needs God to be compassionate toward him and to preserve his life in the midst of threats against his life. Why does he ask God to show him compassion? Because God's instruction is his delight. He appeals to God to save his life because he delights in God's instruction. He knows that God will ultimately exalt the righteous and destroy the wicked. So we ask God to act on his behalf because he belongs to God. Delighting in God's instruction has taught the psalmist what to ask for. He wants God to be compassionate toward him when he feels like his life is in danger. He knows God will hear his request and act on his behalf even when his life is being threatened. The psalmist is not only concerned about how God will comfort him, but how God will deal with those around him. In verses 78 through 80, he begins by asking that the arrogant who slandered him with lies and threatened his life will be put to shame. He's asking for God's judgment against evil people. He's learned about the blessings that God provides his people and the curses he provides for his enemies. There are real and lasting consequences to those that arrogantly reject God in his ways. So the psalmist asks God to bring his judgments against evildoers and put them to shame. But as the psalmist asks God for his judgments against evildoers, rather than thinking about how evil they are, how undeserved their slander and lies are, he commits to meditating on God's precepts. He dwells on learning God's ways so that he doesn't follow evil paths that lead him to be put to shame by turning away from God and receiving God's just punishment. His primary concern isn't the fate of the evildoers for what they've done to him, but meditating on God's precepts. Even as he feels the malice of their actions, he chooses to meditate on God's ways instead of the injustice of the situation. To be sure, he wants to see God's justice be done and the arrogant being put to shame. But he's careful 
not to let their evil deeds tempt him to do evil himself. Rather than the evil deeds of others, causing him to wonder what he can get away with himself, he commits to meditating on God's precepts so that he can discern between what is good and evil and then pursue what is good. One of the real temptations we can face when we see people do things we know are wrong in God's sight is that we can be tempted to be slack in our own holy pursuit of God. It can look like people who are opposed to God are getting away with it, but they never do. If you need a reminder about this, I'd encourage you to read Psalm 73 this afternoon. Or you can listen to Jared or Luke's sermon. They both have preached on Psalm 73, and those sermons are both available on our website. But another challenge the psalmist faced, as he's been slandered with lies, is that some of God's people have been affected by these lies and turned away in their support of him. So he asked God that the people who fear God and know his decrees would turn to him. He's been without their support, and he longs for God to provide it for him again. As the psalmist is vindicated by his words and actions, which show that he is faithful to God, his desire is for God's people to recognize God at work in him. He wants their support in this time of affliction, even if they previously turned away from supporting him. God's people have their commonality in their fear of God and knowledge of his word. They place their faith in Jesus to save them from their sins and walk in the new life that they have in Christ. Experiencing support and encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ is a particular comfort to us because of the common faith that we share. We've learned who God is as Jesus revealed him to us. We've learned why Jesus came and had to die for our sins. We've experienced God's grace towards us and the transforming power of his spirit and his word. We rejoice in the shared experience of seeing God being glorified as he transforms his people to grow in their obedience to him and love for him. We need each other. We are members of each other in the body of Christ, and each of us has been given gifts to serve each other so that we'll all grow together in our faith in Jesus. This is why God put us together in the church. We get to put his wisdom and love on display to the world as we love and serve each other. The last thing the psalmist asks God for in this section of Psalm 119 is that his heart would be blameless regarding God's statutes so that he won't be put to shame. After asking for God to judge evildoers, he asks God to preserve him so that he won't fall under the same judgment. He desires to be blameless before God instead of forsaking him. He relies on God to keep him blameless by teaching him and strengthening him to obey so that he won't act like the wicked and experience the shame they will for rejecting God. Why does the psalmist ask for this? Why do we need to ask God for this? First, it keeps us dependent on God and acknowledges that his ways are right and should be followed wholeheartedly. Second, it reminds us that there are real consequences for our actions. 
if we turn away from God and totally refuse his instruction and discipline, we will experience his judgment. Since the psalmist is asking God for his heart to be blameless in obeying God, does that mean that his performance is what will keep him from being put to shame? No. Jesus' sacrifice is what keeps us from being put to shame because he is the one who paid for all of our sins. However, Jesus saved us to follow and obey him. If we refuse to do what he commands us to, then there's a legitimate concern that we're out of step with who God has called us to be in his son. When we find ourselves in this situation, the quickest remedy is repentance. God is always calling us back to himself when we turn away from him. God will use suffering to correct us and turn us back because he loves us and is continually working for our good. The shame the arrogant will experience is because they acted in a way that is contrary to God, and he will judge them for their disobedience to him. Their arrogant defiance of God will result in them learning that they were wrong and God is not mocked. They will receive the judgment they deserve. As they experience God's judgment, they will see the folly of their actions and be ashamed to experience for himself. This is the shame the psalmist doesn't want to experience for himself. His desire is to blamelessly follow God so that he won't be put to shame. Instead, he will continue to obey God throughout his life in order to receive God's promises of life and peace. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus suffered. His greatest suffering was when he was crucified on the cross and took on God's wrath against our sins. He was a suffering servant who cleansed us from our sin by suffering in our place. Now as we follow Jesus, we will also experience suffering. But Jesus' example helps lead us in how to persevere through suffering. Peter helps us understand how God uses suffering for our benefit when he writes in 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, Someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When we suffer unjustly, we're following in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus committed no sin, never lied, didn't return an insult for an insult, and when he suffered, did not threaten those who caused his suffering, but entrusted himself to God who judges justly. 
Jesus bore our sins on the cross so that we can live for righteousness. Jesus' suffering healed us. This helps us understand how we're to respond in the midst of our suffering by being comforted by our Lord and Savior. He knows our pains, and he leads us back to God. Jesus also proved that all of God's promises to us will be kept because he met God's demands for perfect righteousness for us. Jesus suffered, but he was also comforted in his suffering. We suffer, and we are comforted in our suffering by looking to Jesus, who loves us and died for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you, Father, that you show your goodness and love to us, not only in the wonderful things that we get to experience in our lives, but also in the difficult times that you bring to us to grow us in our faith in you. Father, I thank you for this perspective from your word. Thank you for how you have worked it into me over this last week. Lord, I ask that you would work it into each one of us today and into this coming week. Lord, help us to look at our suffering through your eyes. Help us to see the purposes and plans that you're achieving in us and through us because of your goodness to us and your purposes to grow us in our faith in you. Father, may we follow after our brother Jesus. May we follow after him in his sufferings. May we accomplish the good works you've given us to walk in. And Lord, may we find joy in it as well knowing that you are the one who not only brings about the difficulties for us to grow, but who provides us your comfort and compassion, even when we're feeling at our lowest. Father, we rejoice in you for how good you are to us and that you continue to reveal yourself to us as a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in you, to trust and depend upon you, and to grow in walking with you in the truth. We love you, Father, and we thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.